All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Stand Up 24. I hope everyone is well. I hope you're washing your hands and wearing masks if you're on duty. Some of the content we're going to talk about today is probably a little out of the um, scope of practice or standards of uh, care. Out of the usual norm for uh, a lot of our medics that are, you know, in a primary 911 role. Yeah, we've had uh, recent requests. Some folks have actually asked to talk about respiratory acidosis, alkalosis, and kind of being able to recognize it, how to read it, metabolic acidosis and alkalosis. And I'll be honest, I'm terrible at this, so I'm actually hoping to learn something out of it. I know how to manage a vent, but uh, Andrew is really the expert, especially in his new coming field. He's going to be doing a lot of these kind of management on patients and maintenance. So, Andrew, please enlighten us a little bit. Cool. Yeah, we're just going to do a kind of down and dirty uh, ABG interpretation review. This is a very difficult topic to teach via podcast, I'll say. So... If you really want to get into this and try and get the most out of this, I would recommend go grab a pen, a piece of paper, and as we go, we're going to kind of play that uh, child's TV show kind of game where I'll ask a question and you'll answer it in your head and I'll say, very good. Yeah, it's going to be the ultimate (laughs) communication tool challenge. Have you ever been to those workshops where they were like, okay, one person gets, everybody on the team cannot see what the person with the instruction is giving and they can't see them, but the instructions have to tell them how to build something yeah. with Legos. Yeah. That's exactly what we're doing here. Yeah. Be terrible. This, this lecture is definitely <laughs> geared towards PowerPoint, I would say, but we're going to make the best of it. So let's get into it. Um, I'm a big believer and I, I, I have this meme here in my, my slideshow that I really love. And it says, uh, Study concludes that anyone who says they understand acid-base balance is a big fat liar, and I believe that. Agree. Because I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm okay at it, but I'm no expert, so I'm, we're always learning this, and I'm going to go through it to the best of my ability. And if anyone has any thoughts, corrections, observations, whatever, put them in our show notes. So, what is an acid-base balance? Acid-base balance is essentially the mechanism that our body uses to keep its Fluids, typically, you know, our plasmas, but everything in the body has pHs. Our stomach acid has pH, blood has pHs, all that. And that's our acid-base balance is trying to keep those pH numbers in a neutral uh, level. So, and then what is an ABG? We hear ABGs being talked about a lot. ABG is the actual lab values that we're going to use to interpret an acid-base balance. So what's acid-base? Acid-base is either the acidity, the basicity, or the alkalinity of a serum, which... Most of the time, we're talking about arterial blood because that's how we're measuring this is by reading the lab values based on the arterial blood that's been drawn. Okay, so let's start with talking about just some normal values because knowing all of our normal lab values for our ABGs is going to be the foundation that we're going to build upon for this. So the first one that we need to know is our pH levels. pH is a scale that we use that's going to evaluate the acidity basicity or alkalinity of uh, our blood, you know, and in this case, arterial blood. Uh, A normal pH is 7.35 to 7.45. So a pH less than 7.35 represents acidosis and a pH greater than 7.45 is going to represent alkalosis. So the next measurement we're going to see is the PaO2. So this is the measurement of carbon dioxide in the plasma. The normal range for that is 35 to 45. So a PaCO2 level less than 35 is going to represent alkalosis and a PaO2 
or excuse me, a PaCO2 greater than 45 is going to represent acidosis. So this confuses a lot of people because our pH level also has 35 and 45 in it. And on our pH, less than 7.35 is acidosis. But when we look at our CO2, less than 35 is alkalosis. And this kind of trips some people out because they get the numbers 35 and 45 in their head, but they're kind of, you know, inverted between the pH and the PaCO2. The way I like to do it, remember that hydrogen ions are what are going to cause a buildup of acid. And hydrogen ions correlate to CO2 that we, you know, exhale. And if you remember that CO2 equals acid, a high level of that, 45 and up, is acidosis. A low number on that, less than 35, is alkalosis. So the next thing that we're going to measure, and this is all measurements to give our ABG a name. You know, this is our, our uncompensated metabolic acidosis, to give it those names. Uh, and the last part of that is going to be our bicarb, the HCO3. So this represents the amount of bicarbonate in the blood, which is a which is a buffer, and its normal range is 22 to 26. When I learned this, one of the instructors said, always remember it's 22 to 26. It's the ages you want to date. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "You'll never, you'll never forget it. Nice. <laughs> that it's twenty. The number normal range is twenty-two to twenty-six. Ages you want to date. Very well put. Yeah, I guess so. In a so inappropriate way, right? So a low bicarb, so below twenty-two, correlates to acidosis, and a high bicarb, which would be over twenty-six, represents alkalosis. So with all these numbers and all these values, we remember." A lot of our ABGs can be defined as either being respiratory or metabolic in nature. So how do we figure those out? Uh, we're going to be using our bicarb and our CO2 to help us determine which one is which. Okay, there's going to be a couple other measurements that you're going to see in these lab values. These values aren't really going to help you figure out the name of your ABG, your metabolic versus respiratory, things like that. This is just going to be on addition to that. And it's going to be really good information for you to figure out and uh, understand on your patient's condition, especially their respiratory status. First one's going to be the PaO2. This is going to be kind of the big one. The PaO2 is the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. Normal range is about 80 to 100. But remember, this is not a percentage. It's a partial pressure. So it can be driven up over 100. Yeah, so no correlation with the SpO2. No this is totally different size. story. Totally different. It's the amount of oxygen that's bound, you know, two cells. So, and like I said, it's a partial pressure. So we can have one's, you know, numbers well over 100. So your patient that's been, you know, vented uh, on 100% FiO2 for, you know, two days, they could have a PaO2 very high, you know, 150, 180, 200 even. Below that is, that's when we start to notice our like respiratory failure patients. PO2 is really good for when we walk in and they say, hey, we just tubed this patient for respiratory failure. What's his PO2? Oh, it's 40. That's very, very bad. Right. It's valid. Yeah. You know, right now I've been seeing, you know, some stuff floating around on all the coronavirus patients and some of the numbers that I was seeing for patients, you know, with PO2s of 40% while they're maxed out on PEEP and FiO2 and their PF ratios are less than 100, <laughs> things like that. Um, and that's the big thing that we're going to use our PaO2 for is trying to determine their respiratory status. So it's, uh, it's typically said that about less than 50 on their PaO2 is going to indicate respiratory failure. So it would be easy to say anybody with the 
PaO2 of less than 50, hey, we, we come into an ER, we get this patient, we see that they're obtunded, and then you get that lab on top of it. Definitely a great candidate for intub- immediate intubation, high, high oxygenation. Yeah, I was, I was you, you beat me to it. I was just going to say, yeah, when we walk in and they say, hey, here's his ABG, his, you know, he's in a respiratory acidosis and his PO2 is 45. Hey, we want to intubate this patient before we leave. Or, you know, maybe, you know, if he's on the edge, you know, his PO2 is 65, that's getting close to, you know, that respiratory failure side. Maybe it's, hey, let's trial him on a, an NPPV mask. So there are a couple other measurements that you will see in there, and I'm not going to get into them. There are, you know, things like your base excess and things like that that you can measure, and uh, we're not going to worry about those today, honestly, because I still struggle to, you know, understand all the intricacies of those, and they are a little more advanced. So we're going to keep it basic today. We don't want to confuse any anybody or get anything overwhelmed. The next concept we're going to talk about is compensated versus uncompensated. Like the name sounds, that is looking at our patient and figuring out if they have compensated for their alkalosis, acidosis, or if they have not. The way we determine that is if their pH is out of its norms. If their pH is below, say, 7.35, not only is that acidotic, but it is also uncompensated. And same on the other spectrum of it. If it is above 7.45, it's alkalotic and it's uncompensated. So ultimately, we're using our pH reader as the benchmark for compensated or uncompensated. All the other lab values could be out of whack, but that will be the determinant factor. They can. Yeah. For instance, a COPD patient, you know, could be retaining a lot of CO2 and they could have a high acidotic CO2 of, say, 50, 55. But they are in that state all the time. They live with it. Their body is compensated for it and their pH will remain in a normal limit. So it'd be like a 7.37. Yeah, so they're in a compensated acidosis. That makes sense. Yeah, and um, it goes with all kinds of other disorders. For instance, a lot of our metabolic patients, you'll see an elevated bicarb, but a normal pH. And that's because their kidneys are working really hard to add a, you know, buffer into the system to try and bring that level of acidity down. Uh, I'd like to start with acidosis. That's sort of the most common one that we see out there. There are some conditions out there that will put people into an alkalotic state, but for the most part, we're seeing acidosis. And like the name suggests, that's a buildup of acid in the blood, in our serum plasma. Uh, We measure that by a pH level of less than 7.35. So if you do have the ability to see uh, ABGs with your patients when you go in for that interfacility transport, you can pull up those labs, look at their pH, and by just looking at the pH, you will know if they are acidotic. So, and like I said, that is a pH less than 7.35. So acid is the byproduct of uh, metabolism, basically hydrogen ions, which are CO2. So an acidosis occurs when the acidic level rises to the point that the body cannot buffer it anymore, which basically means get rid of that excess hydrogen ion CO2, which translates to acid. So we buffer that two ways mainly. We're either going to have our kidneys buffer it by our kidneys excreting bicarb or through our respiratory system by breathing off that excess CO2 that's in our body. So the next thing with acidosis to talk about is respiratory versus metabolic. We always hear that floating around. And like the name suggested, it basically implies what is driving that acidosis. Is it from a metabolic condition, whatever kind of disease process the patient's in? 
is causing acidosis or is it their respiratory processes? And the classic example of that is your chronic COPD patient that has been retaining CO2 for a long period of time and having respiratory distress. They're going to develop a respiratory acidosis because they're retaining CO2, which in turn is driving up their PaCO2 and causing acidosis. On the flip side of that, we have our alkalotic states, and we can have metabolic or respiratory-driven alkalosis. There are not a lot of disease processes that cause a uh, profound metabolic alkalosis. So as far as a metabolic alkalosis, there are conditions that can cause that. The classic one is our uh, ethanol ingestions, the propylene glycol, I believe it is, the patient that drank antifreeze, you know, usually presents themselves with a, like, I believe it's a wide anion gap, metabolic alkalosis, but these things are kind of rare. We do on occasion run into patients that are in a respiratory alkalosis though. So when you think about this, remember that alkalosis is the opposite of acidosis and it is removing too much CO2 from the plasma. Most of the conditions out there, they're going to cause a respiratory alkalosis are ones that are going to cause the patient to hyperventilate. So your anxiety patient that's been breathing, you know, 35, 40 times a minute, something crazy, they're blowing off all their CO2 and they have a low CO2 number uh, level. That's why they're becoming alkalotic. Other things are going to be hyperthermia patients, uh, septic patients, salicid overdoses, anything that's going to make someone hyperventilate. That's going to drive them into a respiratory alkalosis because they're removing too much CO2. Which would make sense with what you said that it's opposite when you look at the partial pressure of CO2. When it goes below 35, kind of like our entitled CO2, yes, you're breathing it off too much. Right. And when you're it's alkalotic. above that, yeah. When it's, so, yeah, when it's above 45, that's when we're becoming acidotic. And normally any of the conditions that are out there that are causing respiratory acidosis are the ones where we're retaining CO2. You know, our COPD or our asthma patient that's not able to... Uh, exhale and get all that CO2 out of their system. So uh, two opposite spectrums on it. So now let's get into some of the actual ABG interpretations. We're going to take some of the stuff that we've talked about, kind of those building blocks of our ABGs, lab values, things like that, and try and put it together and actually name an ABG. What do we need to know? Uh, Our ABGs are going to have a first, middle, and last name. First name is going to be something like compensated or uncompensated. Our middle name is going to be something like metabolic or respiratory. And our last name is going to be something like alkalosis or acidosis. So lucky part of this is that finding the first and last name is very, very simple. We're going to go look at the patient's pH. So let's say we have a pH of 7.27. If you have pen and paper, this is a good time to start writing things down because it'll be easier for you to organize it on paper than in your head. Let's say we have a pH of 7.27. We know that it is less than 7.35, so that means that it is uncompensated. And with it being less than 7.35, we know that it is on the acidotic side. So we now have the first name and the last name of our ABG. We know that it is a uncompensated acidosis. That part is like really simple. And it applies to all the ABGs. Let's say that we have a pH of 7.49. We know that it is above 7.45, so it is uncompensated. And we know that since it's above 7.45, 
it is alkalotic. So we have a uncompensated alkalosis. That part is fairly easy. The finding the middle name of our ABG is where things get complicated. So that's going to be our step three of this whole process. What we're going to do to find that middle name is we're going to look at PaCO2 and the bicarb. So in an abnormal ABG, when we look at those two values, we're going to try and figure out which one of those is outside of its normal range. And that is going to tell us whether we have a respiratory or metabolic-driven acidosis. So for instance, let's say our bicarb is 23, and let's say that our PaCO2 is 55. So 55 is high for the PaCO2, so that's our one that is out of its normal range. It's on the acidotic side, and our bicarb is still within normal limits. So this will tell us that it is a respiratory acidosis, and it will match with our acidotic pH. So when we're looking at three things, we've got an, an acidotic pH, an acidotic PaCO2, and a normal bicarb. So we've got, you know, two for acidotic. That's going to tell us that it is a respiratory driven. Or we'll flip it around. So if you've got your pen and paper, go ahead and write down, let's say that we have a pH of 7.1. So that's going to be acidotic and it's uncompensated. So we have an uncompensated acidosis. Let's say that our PaCO2 is 37 and our bicarb is 16. So automatically it tells us it, the bicarb is out of the normal bicarb range. Bicarb is out of the norm. Yep. And that's and it's, metabolic. And it's acidotic. So that's a metabolic acidosis. Yep. Excellent. We're going to talk out just a couple more of these with a few numbers. Write these things down. It's going to be way easier to write it out and see it than in your head. So let's just practice for a few of them. So let's say that we have a pH of 7.2. Our PaCO2 is 60. And our bicarb is 24. Let's find our first and last name. So we know that it is below 7.35, so it's uncompensated. And we know that it is on the acidotic side, so we have an uncompensated acidosis. So now, step three of this, we're going to look at our PaCO2 and our bicarb. Which one of these is out of its norm? The PaCO2 is, right? It's 60. It's high. And our bicarb is normal. So it automatically puts it into the respiratory. So it puts it into the respiratory side. So we know that it is a respiratory acidosis. All right. And let's do another one. Let's say that our pH is 7.2. Our CO2 is 40. And our bicarb is 16. So for our first and last name, it's less than 7.35. So we know that it's acidotic and uncompensated. So we have a uncompensated acidosis. So now let's look at our PaCO2 and our bicarb. Which one of those is out of its norm? The bicarb is. So we know that we have a metabolic acidosis. So if you want to learn more on these, there are a lot of videos online. There's a lot of places you can find ABGs to actually look at and interpret and practice. I encourage you to do that. If you're doing a transport of a patient or maybe you're just in the ER and maybe you know some staff and you're able to ask if they have any ABGs you can look at, that'd be a really good way to learn so I want to talk about a couple other concepts with ABG interpretation, though, because they don't always show up with these classic numbers that are going to make us make it easy for us to interpret. Is this where you're referring to the compensated portion? This is, yeah. So now we're going to talk about 
partially compensated acidosis and alkalosis. So remember when I said that when we're naming our ABGs, we're going to look at the PaCO2 and the bicarb, and one of those is going to be out of its norm, right? And that's going to give us our middle name. That's not always a hard, fast rule. Sometimes we're going to look at those numbers and have really strange values that are going to kind of get in the way of that rule that we just talked about, that only one would be out of its norm. So what I'm referring to are partially compensated ABGs. And these are very common, actually, because the body's natural progression is that it's going to want to correct itself. It's going to want to correct whatever kind of acidosis or alkalosis uh, is going on. So you'll find patients with lab values that are going to you know, correlate with their attempt to compensate. An example of this, so let's get out our pen and paper again. Let's say we've got a pH of 7.1, a PaCO2 of 60, and a bicarb of 30. pH, we know that it is a uncompensated acidosis. When we look at our CO2, it's high, so that tells us acidosis and typically respiratory, right? Because it's high. But then we look over here at the bicarb, it's 30, right? And that's alkalosis. And it's metabolic. Yeah. So what's happening here? So this is a patient that is probably in a respiratory acidosis, and his body is releasing bicarb to try and form a more alkaline. Does that make sense? A little bit. I mean, I'm yeah. so, like I said, I'm terrible at these as it is, and this is usually right about where I have the okay. most difficult time in understanding these. Yeah, so basically the body is releasing bicarb trying to buffer down all that acid. So it's, it's, it's reading high as alkalotic. But what it's basically doing is it's adding alkali into the acid, to trying to it normalize out. it. To buffer itself To out. buffer itself, yeah. So these are the kind of things we're going to see with mixed disturbances, is that your PaCO2 and bicarb are both going to be out of their norms, sort of in the opposite directions. And it's that one of them is trying to correct the problem. You know, so maybe we'll see a really low PaCO2, and it's because the patient's hyperventilating and trying to blow off all that extra CO2, or we'll see a high bicarb because they're trying to buffer, things like that. I know that kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in this and makes it a little more complicated, but I want to bring it up because these are ones that we're going to see. We're not always going to see an ABG that's going to be really easy and us to be able to name that it's an uncompensated metabolic acidosis. You know, sometimes we're going to see funky things where we're going to have to look at the ABG and realize, oh, you know, he's got a high bicarb. Kidneys are trying to buffer out this acidity. So now I just want to touch on a couple notes on dealing with a patient in some of these states. The main one's going to be acidosis. That's typically what we see. Metabolic alkalosis and things like that aren't as, as common. A couple notes I want to make is that when we're managing these patients, we have to be pretty careful with our vent. We can easily kill someone with uh, a pH issue. So the classic example of that that I can point out is our, our DKA patients, DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. What's, you know, one of the most classic symptoms of a DKA patient, their hyperventilation, right? Yeah. Hyperventilating, uh, low blood, low blood pressure. Yeah. So when we pick up these patients and we, we when we encounter them, that we find them with respiratory rates in the high twenties, maybe even the thirties, the reason they're breathing that high or the reason they have a respiratory rate that high is because they are very acidotic and they're mechanism to handle that is they're breathing very, very fast, trying to blow off the CO2 that's in their system. Scott Weingart from MCRIT, he likes to always talk about with his innovation, confirm kills kind of lectures, 
that there's three ways to kill people, right? You can do hemodynamic kills, oxygenation kills, or pH kills. pH kills are basically that when we have a patient that's really, really acidotic and we intubate them and we put them on a vent and we take away their means of compensation. So this is your DKA or that's breathing 35 times a minute or something. And we put them on a vent and drop their rate to 12. <laughs> so they were breathing that fast because they're trying to get rid of all that CO2. And even with them hyperventilating, they were able to keep their pH at 6.9. And then we just took away their only mechanism to compensate and their pH drives even lower and they, you know, cardiac arrest. Anything to add? Yeah, no, I mean, vents can be important. The, the funny part of it is at the same time, while we make vent changes, you got to realize that your vent changes uh, affecting the respiratory excretion portion of the system are going to take a long time. I mean, whatever vent change we actually might make, it might take 30 minutes to actually reflect an actual ABG pool. So while some drastic ones might kill, it's more over the, the patient's already in bad shape. You don't want to make it any worse, but you want to definitely improve. I've run into at least a couple of patients where they were hypoventilated on the DKA portion, for example. And all it took was we saw the pH was below 7.35 and we saw that their partial um, pressure of CO2 was way high. So they were acidotic, hypoventilating themselves. And all it took was just increasing the minute ventilation, which was through respiratory rate and tidal volume. And then we saw some better correlation by the time we dropped off the patient. And I mean, when I mean, when we dropped off the patient, it was an hour later and it was like a two point move in the PACO2 and barely nothing to pH. So, uh, you know, just be mindful with the ventilator, but being able to relate a couple of those changes as needed. Yeah. And I think the big thing with that to remember is that we're not going to fix them with our vent. I think we're just going to prevent them from getting worse. <laughs> so the other thing I want to bring up too, is that don't forget in your patients that are really, really acidotic, a lot of our medications are not going to work as well as they normally would. A lot of our pressors, anything else that we're giving these patients are really not going to be as effective. And the reason for that is that inside our bodies, all of our, you know, enzymes, proteins, receptor sites, all of that stuff, they live in a very specific pH level. You know, like we have, you know, enzymes in our stomach that are designed to live in our stomach. And they're designed to have a state that they live in where our pH is like three, like our stomach acid is. And same goes for all everything floating around in our blood. All of the, like I said, enzymes, proteins, receptor sites, all of these things. And when our pH changes, basically the substrate that would be binding to all of these different things doesn't work anymore. And they become what's called denatured. And that's why a lot of our meds aren't going to work anymore. So think about that is that pH is so acidic that all of the mechanism of actions that's going to happen with our meds isn't going to work anymore because uh, that pH level is no longer ideal for our body to function the way that it's supposed to. Yeah. It's a great example. I mean, I ran into it actually recently. Uh, we had a, septic patient or new onset sepsis that had multiple vectors as cause of the sepsis. And we had to secure the airway, had to go through the RSI procedure. We used this, they were hypotensive, so we used a smaller dose of induction to make sure we didn't cause any hemodynamic instability. But so I wasn't surprised at that part that it took a little bit to put him under. Where I was surprised is once we actually pushed the paralytic, the rocuronium, it took way longer than I have seen it in a long period of time to actually act. It finally worked. We were able to intubate the patient just fine with no um, deoxygenation, but it was just for a second I forgot and my partner had to remind me like, hey, they're super acidotic. Like they've got multiple vectors also 
pre-existing comorbidity and uh, mortality issues such as renal failure and diabetes and everything else that it put him at that disadvantage and it completely added into, into the whole picture of why my meds took a little bit more to work. Yeah, that's the perfect example. And another one that I like to use is just remember, like if you're taking one of these patients and they're on some kind of vasoactive medication, you know, they, they need an epi drip, a levo drip, whatever. Remember that your normal dose might not be enough for that. You might need to be extending your dose, you know, up into the, you know, whatever, 20, 30 mic range, depending on how acidotic they are. So you actually see the results that you need. If anything, just warrants a little bit more of a aggressive approach in increasing your uh, titration of your medication. Yeah, Instead of sure. small 2.5 increments, it might be one of those instances where you look at the pH and you're like, wow, that's really acidotic. I need to go ahead and actually go into five mic increments, potentially. Judge clinically and see what you need based on the blood pressure you're looking at as well. Yeah, and the last thing I want to bring up before we wrap this up here is to uh, remind you guys that when we change the pH, we also change our potassium. So potassium is always going to go in the opposite directions of the pH. So if you have a uncompensated acidosis, alkalosis, whatever you've got, remember that the pH is changing the potassium in the opposite direction. And actually, we talked about it in our last podcast with the H's and T's, but I'm going to, I'm going to try and throw this one out here. Don't quote me on the exact numbers. I believe it's for every 0.6 in the pH change, the potassium is going to move 0.1 in the opposite direction. I believe that's the correct number. So remember, if you have a drastic change in the pH, say the pH is really low, your potassium is moved in the opposite direction. So you might have a hyperkalemia state on top of that or vice versa. Just food for thought, something to remember. When you look at that set of lab values and you see that, you know, really low or high pH, take a look over at their electrolytes and take a look at the potassium because a hyperkalemia can cause major problems and a hypokalemia can cause major issues too. And a lot of times hypokalemia, we can actually treat, we can ask the, the, the ER staff or the ICU, Hey, give us a couple K riders, you know, and it's, it's really important to get on top of that fast because a profound hypokalemia is really hard to get behind. I mean, we can't give potassium fast enough, you know, with those severely hypokalemic patients. So the sooner you notice that jump on it, maybe you have to, wherever you work, maybe you have to call med control, Talk to whoever you need to to maybe start treating that. Anyways, that's, uh, I think, all I got on on uh, acidosis and acid-base balance. Anything you want to add? No, I think it was a good learning experience for me because, unfortunately, in my pro part of my practice in these many years, that has probably been my weakest portion, um, something I should definitely pay attention to more. And with you actually kind of doing it as a teaching learning at this point, it actually helped me a lot. So thank you so, so much for taking the time to really explain it. Hopefully we've an answered a couple of questions. If anybody's got any more, please reach out to us via our email. Again, thank you again so much for joining us and listening on Stand Up 24. We will be moving forward as much as we can with the current state that we have in the country. And hopefully we'll give you something to listen to while you're in your own personal little um isolation yeah like i said make some make some quarantinis and uh listen to stand up 24 what is a quarantini i i don't know i've just made it up i i, I think it's i'm gonna say vodka gin and some purell <laughs> put it in a tumbler and shake it up on ice and get it in a martini glass maybe some maybe some lemon with it and yeah purell is like gold yeah hard to find oh, okay, what's fine. my substitute oh geez i don't know <laughs> anyway thank you everybody i uh, hope you guys enjoyed the latest couple of episodes and hope to bring you more as the time comes forward uh this has been stand up 24 from alex and andrew and zane will hopefully join us soon thank you thank you